Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Erin Malone. Erin Malone's new book, Sight of Disappearance, was a finalist for the National Poetry Series and is out now from Ornithopter Press. She's also the author of Hover from Tebet Bach Press 2015 and a chapbook, What Sound Does It Make? from Concrete Wolf 2008. Erin's recent honors include the Coniston Prize from Radar Poetry and the Robert Creeley Memorial Prize from Marsh Hawk Press. Erin has received grants and fellowships from Washington State Artists Trust, For Culture, Jack Straw, and the Colorado Council of the Arts, and residency support from Kimmel Harding Nelson Center, the Anderson Center, U Cross, and Gentile Foundations. Her poems have appeared in Field, New Ohio Review, Salamander, Cimarron, Deloitte Poetry Journal, and elsewhere. A former editor of Poetry Northwest, Erin has taught at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, the University of Washington Rome Center, Hugo House, and with Seattle's Writers in the Schools. She lives in Bainbridge Island, Washington, and works as a bookseller. Hello and welcome, Erin. Hi, Han. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Erin, would you like to open us with a poem from Sight of Disappearance? Um, Yeah, I'd actually really love to read the title poem of the collection. Sight of Disappearance. The wind is a cop with a deadline. It has one story and you're in the way. Rattling, it sharpens itself between the door and jam. It can stay all night, cool shiver, scissors near your ear. Your hair falls. The wind repeats its line of questioning gently now. Look at its softened rock face. When the world was large, you thought each thing had its God. God of the red grass, God of the river, God of the eye. But there is less and less you can remember. Fingerprints erased from the salt dish, birch trees making scraps of themselves. Try crawling, try reason. The wind has your name, your nape in its mouth and means it. Thank you. Right before we started talking, we were discussing which poem for you to read. And I said that it's not it's not always that we have a book of poetry with a, a title poem. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you come to choose the title for Sight of Disappearance? Was that was that something you knew all along or? Yeah, you know, my first, I feel like my first collection had different titles before it found um, the right one. But very early on, I think Sight of Disappearance was, um, was set in my mind. And so all the versions that I sent out and all of the revisions I did, I think that they were all under this title. It came very early. And I think it's because of the language around uh, a missing person. You know, it's a very, it's it's what you hear in the news or what you read in the news, right? Site of disappearance. The site of disappearance was here or, you know, in a field or, you know, the last time they saw the person. And so I do think that that kind of informed it, that sort of journalistic language. I'm so glad you brought that up because I did not, that's not something I identified or, 
or thought about. Um, and in terms of documentary and, um, like the duality of language when it's a legal or a report versus in a poem. Um, and I, I think on this podcast, a lot of times we come back to Muriel Ruckheiser's, um, the poem extends the document. Mm -hmm. That yes. idea. Yeah. And I use, um, I feel like a lot of my poems do use language that's directly taken from newspaper um, accounts of, of the events of the missing boy, boys in, in the story that I'm telling. Yes. I was, when you were talking about this poem, I was thinking about Agnes Barda's has this quote about um, a picture appears even with a hole in the middle. Mm. Um, and just the idea of like, when you're, when you're looking into something and you know, there are absences and you know, there are gaps. And even, even with a very normal narrative in quote unquote, normal memory, whatever that is. Um, and there's not trauma and there's not, even, even then it's like, there are so many gaps and we remember things differently. And, and I just, I'd love for you to talk some about, because I feel like when lyric and narrative work together well, they really help each other through like the holes and the absences, particularly. Yeah, definitely. And this story, it's so interesting that you mentioned that quote, because that's what this book is about, right? It is about absence and um, recovery, you know, literally it's about the absence of a boy um, and the recovery of his body. That's one of the stories in the book, um, but it is also the absence of self and the recovery of self. And so the quote that you just said um, sort of contains all of that. And in terms of lyric and narrative holding hands um, in this work, I did have to work at the narrative quite a bit because I tend toward the lyric more. Really, I feel like I'm a really sound-driven poet. Um, and so the story part is always the hardest thing for me to do. And so I feel like when I was structuring the, the manuscript, what I had were, what I had was the lyric, but the narrative is something I sort of had to fill in. Like there were later poems that came to um, the book that needed to be there in order to guide the reader. So, um, and like one of those poems that's uh, more narrative is, uh, is the one about where I'm in the bar telling, it's called martial arts and I'm in this place where I've had these memories that are starting to surface and I'm telling my husband about them while we're waiting for my our son uh, to finish a, a martial arts lesson um and I could read that poem if you love if you like okay great so this is called martial arts at the start of every lesson the teacher asks what's your best defense in a dark alley Upstairs, our son swings his legs, kicking neatly like a clock at the quarter hour, kick, kick, punch into the teacher's palms while we wait in the bar below, knees touching, watching the news with the sound off. 
Someone is wailing, but the sound has left her body. Don't go down the dark alley. The kids stomp, and behind the bar, the bottles chime, a tremble that ripples back to the center of itself. Sirens pulse across the woman's face, the yellow tape, a border keeping what no one wants to know. My right knee against your left, a small pressure we've built our house around. Everything I'm afraid of, I'm about to name. Thank That's probably you. the most narrative poem in the book, but it is definitely giving some some narrative clues. Um, so, and I feel like you're really generous with narrative. I think there's always like a, a danger in in writing our narratives where we think like I'm being so obvious here, I'm being so clear, and it's not. And there's so many more gaps than we understand, and and part of the pleasure and the challenge of writing a book of poetry of course since there is so much silence and room for silence is like making sure enough of the gaps are filled but also not all the gaps um but your opening poem biography i mean you have the title of biography like life story and then you give it's very lyrical but it also is so centered on the form of the brother and the the character and kind of the spirit of the brother. And it's, um, I mean, I think of Ann Carson's Knox. I think of um, other, other like lyric texts where they have a figure particularly that is very um, in conversation with. And, um, and I feel like there's a, a lot of generosity in, in that, sharing um and opening up on that note yeah I just you know it's not it's not a text that I got done with and was like the poet never told me enough and I don't know what's going on and because there are those texts that are like very memoir driven or very documentary and but they're more scant on details um yeah thank you and thanks for mentioning Ann Carson's Knox, because I do feel like she was that particular um, book of hers. And she, I love her work. I've, I've been a student of her work since the beginning. Um, but Knox was definitely one of my uh, touchstones during the writing of this. Um, as well as, you know, maybe um, uh, Maggie Nelson's Jane, a murder. Do you know that? I know of it, but I haven't read Jane. Okay. So that is, that is actually much more narrative, you know, and, and it's sort of, I feel like it gave me some permission to be, you know, to tell there's a poem in here where I'm just, I am pretty narrative. It's broken. It looks like poetry, but it's really, um, stating a lot of facts, um, like the names of the boys who were taken. And, um, and I guess maybe I should say for the readers, um, because it's likely they haven't read this book yet. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they will read it. Um, that the, that the book is sort of organized around three stories. It's like weaving three stories together. And the first story is that of, um, the death of my brother, 
in childhood. Um, uh, he was 11 years old and he was born with a congenital heart defect. Um, and when he died, the same day he died, a boy who had been missing and who was my age, I was 13, he was found in a field. And um, so these are, so that's the second story. And then the third story is my having, having forgotten um, that murder and another one that occurred um, in our little town um, in Bellevue, Nebraska, 40 years ago. So, and then my having forgotten and also raising a son who's coming to be that age, I think. Um, so those are the three things that are woven together because when my son came to be about that age, then I was, I had this fear that sort of came, you know, that bubbled up in me and just wouldn't leave me alone. And I really needed to investigate and find out what it was that was driving that. So, yeah, thank you for outlining those stories. Um, I'm always thinking about my children saying, no spoilers, like spoiler alert, no spoilers. So I'm always <laughs> trying not to. I don't like, want to spoil it. Yeah. <laughs> drop too much. Um, but I think that's really helpful. It's just, it is wild how much children will bring back our own childhoods and what resurfaces and kind of the deep, deep markers on us that come up. So I promise that we'd we talk about the structure of the book and, and you've kind of outlined that and, you know, you're working, you're working with memory, you're working with elegy and document and, and also just, you know, I wrote down like in absentia, like when you're working around what the mind doesn't really want to turn to, you know, and of course, martial arts closes with everything I'm afraid of, I'm about to name. And that's really powerful, I think, to go into that naming. Lucille Clifton has, of course, like her Adam and Eve poems, where Eve is like, like, I'm summarizing terribly, probably, but like, when Adam's asleep, I'm going to whisper into his mouth our names, like, I'm going to do this naming work, I'm going to, and that can, that can be really powerful work, but it's also not easy work. It's also work that doesn't feel, it can feel awful when you're doing it. How long, how long were you working on this book and, and what was that process like? And did you need to take breaks? And like, what was the research? Was that kind of like abstract level? Was that helpful? Was that kind of, it can be a distraction sometimes I find and, and good. Well, I started having these memories, you know, that, like I said, that sort of demanded to be addressed. Um, I feel like that would, it would have been around 2014, and so I sort of like thought that I wanted to, my first thing was I, I had just, or my first book was published in 2015 and I'm the sort of writer, this is very unfortunate and I don't like this about myself, but I kind of, I have a hold of one thing and I cannot let it go until it it's done and it's out there. And I wish I were the sort of poet who could just like, forget about it. Like it's done. And now I'm going to do this, these other things um, while I'm waiting for something to be published. But I'm, I'm not like that. Um, 
So I feel like I sort of gave myself permission to start working on this as soon as the other book was out into the world. So that was about 2015. And I applied for... And here Erin talks about her experience with the Jack Straw Writers Program. Um, a, a writer will choose, um, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 writers to join them. And it's sort of like a mentorship opportunity um, for the year those writers, you know, sort of get together and do some writing and they have to name a project that they're going to be working on. And um, then Jack, Jack Straw comes in and and um, will give them voice, le- you know, not voice lessons, but uh, will help them uh, with a reading, uh, you know, appearance and how to, I'm actually sort of bumbling this a little bit, but um, will help them with things like how to read to an audience, you know? So it's a really, it's a nice program. Um, And I had to, I had to outline a project. And so I decided, well, I'm going to write one long poem about, about this thing that I had forgotten. And then when I got into it, I realized, oh, this is it. First of all, it's, it's not just going to be one poem. It's going to be many. And so I applied to a writing residency, my first ever, um, at Kimmel Hardy Nelson Center, which is located in in Nebraska City, Nebraska, and that is about maybe it's about an hour from where I grew up. And so I drove out there for this residency, and it was just this experience of really returning to my childhood landscape, you know, after being away so long, you know, I, we, li- we left there when I was, um, I think maybe I had just turned 14 or was about to turn 14 and um, moved away. And so I think a lot of my, my memories around that time just got left. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to go back and to be there in the fields and and to feel the weather and the light and everything is different than where I live now. And that really started triggering all of these memories. So, you know, landscape for me is just so important. And I know probably, I mean, for most people it is, um, but it really, in this case, it did just propel the work. So. Yeah, landscape is so powerful. Um, and I mean, in in Sight of Disappearance, which you read to open the podcast, that it opens the wind as a cop with a deadline. It has one story and you're in the way. And so this this personification of like the wind or like this, this I don't know, that doesn't sound right. Like this figuration or this characterization or like the fact that the wind becomes a figure in a, in a kind of person in this poem um I said to you earlier that it was like sly um (laughs) it says it's like because in terms of investigation and um prosecution and all this like there's there's like the legal figures hovering around at the edges of the poems but then to take it and, and figure the wind this way is um it feels more deeply true than if you wrote a poem that had a literal cop in it. Like it feels, it feels truer. And I don't, that's not, it's not done all the time. I mean, it's like the lake in housekeeping. Is that the name of the novel? 
by Marilyn. I'm going to totally mess up her name and Jason Myers is going to have my head. Marilyn Robinson, housekeeping, but nature as having a character and a place and a powerful presence. And I just think that that lyric and the narrative together are just very, very powerful in being able to tell a story. And it's also like very, it's very like fairy tale. It's very evocative and folk tale. And I'm glad you said that because I really, I sort of did discover only after I was finished with the book, how, how much of this is constructed like a fairy tale, how many poems in here have fairy tale, um, a fairy tale sensibility, you know, I was thinking about why. And I think that it's because, you know, when you go through, um, when you have this kind of grief, you know, time really does stop. Right. And we're suspended in our grief. And so like, there's a poem near the end of the book where I've finally sort of broken out of this spell. Um, and I feel like, I, and, and so I go back to my parents who are still in that house. I mean, they're not really, but in my mind, you know, there's still these young parents and they're back and, you know, I wake them up. I go, I go up to them and I, you know, I, I check on them and I wake them up. Um, and I really like, I wrote all that without having that in mind, that explanation in mind. So it was just something that um, worked itself out, but it, it did surprise me how many, um, how fairy tale like the book was when I finished it. There's so much room, especially like violence and children and fairy tale like fairy tales just make room for that in a and I know there's like a a whole kind of fabulism you know kind of movement in creative writing um right now which is very very interesting and and we never kind of and we never let go of fairy tales like they're always they're always somehow with us I did love um there was a conversation you had with Jennifer Sutherland I think and you talked, I mean, it was such a smart conversation. You talked about Hart Crane, but you also talked about the Disney um, version of The Little Mermaid. Oh, right. Man. So that fairy tale, you know, I'm thinking of the Ursula, the sea witch, you know, in that one. But the idea that fairy tales are always with us mm -hmm. and those characters. There's the um the poet, and I'm gonna try not to mess up his name. It's Robin Robertson, who's mm -hmm. a I wanna say he's he's like British Scottish, but he he's done a beautiful translation of Medea. He he works a lot with Greek tragedy and and I met him in grad school and I asked him like why why these like why do you gravitate towards these ancient, like violent, tragic stories and he said like, well, you know, they're not, they're really not any different than stories you read like about the Midwest, about, you know, like X in the United States, about things that happen now. And I think there is such a, it's, it's, it's weird that there's almost a, an easier comfort with dealing with fairy tales, dealing with Greek tragedy than like we have tragedy, like tragic stories happening every week around us. And those are much, much more difficult um, to talk about, to write about, to speak about. 
Um, and when you do, there's, we sometimes get kickback for that or blowback that there's like, um, oh, like writing about your trauma, like it's like it's easy or like it's accessible or or like it's not this like the self-history work that we always do in the arts that the arts make room for and space for. And and that seems to me to have kind of a view of art that's like so abstracted and not kind of in the weeds. And I think it's it's good to be in the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. And I like what you said about this is stuff that we're dealing with every day. Um, and it's, an, but it's also an ancient, they're also ancient stories, you know? Um, I mean, you can look at figures in politics today, for instance, and you can um, find the, the Greek, um, you know, the Greek story of, uh, well, I don't know. I'm thinking of King Midas you know, but I, I mean, you can, so you can definitely take these figures from, um, these, these, uh, this folklore or these, these myths, and you can, you can find a corresponding figure in, uh, in our landscape today or our, our culture today. I'm wondering if, um, you wanted to say something about memory as, fiction or nonfiction, or if it's just a constant interplay for you or how, how that worked when, when, as you wrote Sight of Disappearance? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because of course, you know, memory is very um, fickle and the, the way I remember some things is, is not um, the way my parents remembered them, for instance. And so it it was interesting for me to, you know, go to my parents and say, this is what I remember, and then have them add their stories and sort of come up with the timeline and come up with um, what was actually happening. Because also, you know, there was, I was 13 and they were, you know, they were adults. So they had, you know, they were, their, their memories, I think were a little bit more, um, they were able to grasp more of what was happening, um, in our community. Um, whereas I sort of have pictures, you know, like these sort of Polaroid pictures, um, that I feel like I I'm sifting through, uh, to make these poems. So there is that thing, you know, like, in a way, all memory is fiction. Um, and you know, you've heard that, I'm sure you've heard that science says that every time we remember something, every time we go back for a memory, it's changed. So the memory is always fluid and always changing, um, which I think is just fascinating. And I wish that I had a scientific mind that I could hold this, you know, amazing, these amazing, um, concepts. Um, but, but then it was very important for me though, to nail down the truths of what happened. Um, so, you know, there's, there's one truth, there's this emotional truth of what happened after my brother died. Um, and, and our family was grieving, but then there was all of this stuff that happened around that, 
in our community. And, and that needed, that needed, um, you know, not the emotional truth, but the, you know, the factual, I needed to give the factual um, events. So I actually, as I went back to um, when I was at this particular residency that I mentioned earlier, um, I went to the uh, uh, public library and I, I got into their, uh, you know, I got the old microfiche reels and I sat down with them and I found all the news stories. I found, I found everything I could online, but there was some stuff that I actually had to go into the archives for. And, um, that was a really interesting exercise because for instance, and I know I mentioned it somewhere in the book, but, um, the fact that the first victim, um, of this serial killer so he was found on the day that my brother died and he, his obituary and my brother's obituaries were right next to each other in the, in the, uh, Omaha world Herald. And that's something that I didn't know. Um, and so the, and then they were buried next to each other, which is just like a proximity of, um, you know, it's just it's time, right? You know, I mean, that's the way it's laid out. So, you know, and that was so interesting to me to be like, how did I not, how did this not factor in more? How did these events escape me when they were so near me, if that makes sense? Anyway, so it was really, it was important to do both, both of those things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you have, some, sometimes the image of doors um, that comes up, it, it came up, it comes up in your poems. It comes up in a quote. It also, I think I read it in an interview, actually an earlier interview about hover. I even, the, the image of doors and doors are very, for me, they're very like Emily Dickinson or I don't know. There's something very mm -hmm. liminal and lyric and the door is like a psychic space too. Like you walk through and something changes. What other images were important for you in these poems? Mm. Well, I think um, the image of the bear mm. is important. And so it was kind of, again, it was one of the things that I realized after the book was done that I, um, <clears throat> I don't exactly open with the bear, but he's very, he's like the, maybe the second or third poem in here. Um, I don't know, maybe he's a little further. He's in um, a poem called Last Scene, which is maybe, um, you know, three or four poems in from the beginning. And then a bear closes uh, the collection, a fairy tale bear closes the collection. So in the beginning, he's a nightmare. And at the end, he's sort of an agent of change. So the bear is very, you know, archetypal and important. And when I saw Ryan Mollenkamp's painting, uh, which is on the front of my book now, thank goodness, I couldn't believe how it fit this book, how, you know, when I saw it, I thought, I need that <laughs> as my cover. It is, it is this book, you know, it's sort of like this, because people can't see it. Um, 
uh, on your po- podcast, but you know, the images of this sort of suburban scene and just these dark, these dark homes and like little front lawns. Um, and uh, it's sort of a, you know, very black and white and uh, a mother and a child are looking on as a bear walks down the street. Um, and I just sort of couldn't believe that, that I found this painting that so perfectly illustrates all of my hauntings, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. So. I mean, I think the question of like, what, what haunts you um, is so important for poets in their manuscripts. When did you first see this, this piece of art? Or that became your cover? I was um, co-editing um, Poetry Northwest. Um, I did that for, I think, between 2016 and 2020. And my co-editor and I, um, his name is Aaron Barrel. One of our favorite tasks about editing the journal was getting to choose the cover art for the journal. And we always try to choose um, sort of a local um or a regional artist. And so Aaron found um, Ryan's website and we were going through the website, planning to ask him, you know, if we could use his art on our cover. And um, and the art that we chose for the cover is very different. Um, it's a, I think it's a volcano or, um, it's very different. It's very, you know, evocative in a different way. But he had this older work um, and this was part of, this was one of those images. And when I talked to him later, you know, it was one of those things where, and I mean, maybe I saw this in 2018 or somewhere in there and it, it stuck in my mind. And I sort of thought if I ever get, if this ever gets made into a book, that's what I want to try to have on the book cover. And um, Ryan was so generous in letting letting us use it. Um, but when I asked him about it, he said it was an early series that he worked on for a while and then abandoned. Mm. And I, you know, I thought that was interesting too. Yeah. Um, those abandonments, you know, so. Yes. Yes. Um, and even just the title, the visitor, I think Mm -hmm. is, uh, um, because I always, every time there's a piece of visual art on a book of poetry, I immediately flip to the inside to be like, who's the artist? Like who's, because it's, I mean, who is willing to like, let their art be accessible that way too, like through a poetry reading audience is important. Mm -hmm. Um, and if they're contemporary, I just love love seeing like you know it's it's all of it again like the poet's attention like what what caught your attention what worked with your um poems well like what was accessible like it just brings up a lot of different um different and important details about the book yeah and you know um speaking of that river river is you are hitting it out of the park on these numbers they're so beautiful Thank you, art designer. <laughs> well, off to your designer because, you know, it, each one is a little jewel. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Albin Fisher is, it's just really wonderful when you can trust someone like so implicitly. You just be like, oh, whatever you do is going to be amazing. Like the interior design 
I'm so glad that Amoric and I did not pretend to like, we know what's going on with interior design because we don't, like we don't, we're good readers, but we are not, that's not our specialty. Um, and Albin is really, really generous and um, just does some really beautiful work. And it's, it feels good to kind of keep things small and in the small press. I mean, he's so, he's a talented writer and press owner too. And design. so just, wow. There's there's some real incredible talent uh, yeah. in the community, and and I loved seeing in your acknowledgments that you like you mentioned Lisa Ampleman, like you mentioned Ma of course Mark Harris, you mentioned River River that I love seeing like that your book was like touched different presses and um and I always I feel like that's like that's that's the way it should be like it should be held by a community of people um yeah yeah and I love that spirit of um like I was really excited when I saw that you and uh Amarak were were doing this I was really um I just sort of thought wow you you got together at a conference or something and it I was following you on, on Twitter. I'm not there anymore, but, um, at the time, and I was just, I thought, wow, you just, you guys just decided to start a press. That's kind of amazing. And then, um, and then to just have these very clear, um, guidelines and, um, you know, telling the, the people who were submitting what they could expect from your press. I really like that. And so, you know, I did, I, I submitted to you, I submitted to acre books, um, which also has an open reading period, um, and got some really great feedback from Lisa. I mean, stuff that she said caused me to do sort of a, a big revision that turned the book in such a way that then I knew it was ready. Like I had found the combination, you know, finally, um, for ordering and, and, and those gaps that you mentioned, I feel like I knew how to fill them after reading her comments. So it's this sort of generosity of these small, or even, I guess you would call them micro presses. Mm -hmm. I think is really important. And I like seeing that because my generation, you know, of writers have, we came up out of the contest model and it's the contest model is, Ah, I don't know what to say about it. I I mean, there are there are great things because it can, you know, the con those contests can launch someone's career. But on the other hand, the money involved and um and the you know, you're you're one of a thousand, you know, uh entrants. And it just and there's no time for the editors then to to um, offer the writer any, um, you know, insight into, you know, or help if, if there's a book that they like, but the, it's not quite ready yet. They just say, you know, thanks for thinking of us. It was close or something. And then you apply again the next year, you know, mm. so it's really, and I did, you know, I did it for years. And I think that I've been waiting to see these small presses come up and it's really, really fantastic the model that you're using and the model that Mark Harris at Ornithopter is using. Um, and the fact that you 
you said, you know, we can't take this right now, but Mark will love it. Yeah. And doing it to him and having him say, I love this. It was like, wow. That's I just felt like awesome. I've been, you know, this opportunity on a platter. It was fantastic. That's awesome. It made me so happy um, because it's just like, uh, you just see these books that are so beautiful and ready. And I, I, I think it would be absolutely impossible to just choose one book. I, that would be really hard. And I, and the thing with the co- contest model, it's like best case you win the contest. Worst case you don't even find out you weren't selected until you hear about the winner. <laughs> and I, I think that that, that process is liable to put someone off like of writing, of publishing period. And it's so expensive. And um, I, I, I think all the time about CD Wright and Frank Stanford starting Lost Roads Press together. Um, and I just think that's really powerful and good. And, you know, it's it's hard because you're going to start off with not a lot of power and you're going to start off needing to, you know, generate momentum and needing. To, so especially if you take on debut authors, it's, you know, which, yes, we love debut authors, but also, you know, platforms are real and establishing platforms and it's a lot and it's really good work. And it's a privilege to read to read all these amazing manuscripts and um and you wish you could choose more. <laughs> you just wish that. Yeah. And we did our first reading period, we chose four. <laughs> we almost broke our bank. Like so you said, I th- I think you said we're choosing two. <laughs> and then yeah. <clears throat> we chose four. So this year we're like, yeah, we have to just choose two. <laughs> we need money for reprinting. Um but we're excited to be at AWP. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's how I met your work. And I just think you ended up at just like the perfect home. I said earlier to you that like, it feels like Emily Dickinson's spirit moves at Ornithopter, like that she's like a guiding. Um, and I've never met Mark and I've never had a conversation with him, but just from reading the books that he's chosen and just being like, knowing that I was like, you need to offer a subscription, Mark, because I want every one of your books this year. Like, I'm going to buy them. I'm going <laughs> to like, I'm so happy to. Um, so enthusiastically supporting the micro presses you love is, I think it's where it's at. Like, um, you know, when you say small press, like small press is not gray wolf it's not copper canyon those are huge big presses in poetry world like um they are mm. yeah and i mean it is really funny because i said to i said to my husband um the other day oh i you know i thought that i was with a small press but it turns out um i'm with a micro press (laughs) somewhere i saw somewhere that um it's like if a press does under 24 copy or under 24 books a year, then they're actually considered a micro press. And if they do, and Sean Holy was like, moly. well, in that case, there are a lot of university presses that are probably considered micro rather than small. Um, so that was sort of funny. And then I don't know if you saw this on my Instagram account, but a friend gave me a little ornament of my book. And so it's a micro, I love miniature things. 
Um, I'm just so drawn to them. And um, so it's fantastic. You can read the ISBN numbers on oh there. Oh my and goodness. Blurbs, and it's the, you know, it's really like two and a half inches tall. Oh um, gosh. It's fantastic. And so Mark saw it. <laughs> he wrote to me like, if we get any <laughs> smaller, we'll disappear. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, yes. Yes, I'm really, really here for, I've now seen two book ornaments and I'm like, wow, okay, this is what we need. It's officially, I want the book ornaments on my tree. Maybe we need to make this. Erin, uh, <laughs> is there another poem you'd like to read? Yeah, let's see. Um, how about if I read the last poem in the book? That sounds great, especially since we have talked about the bear. Yes, the bear. So I open, I kind of open with a bear and I'm going to end with a bear. It's called, In the Stories We Are All Transformed. Out of the forest and down to Maine, a bear wanders headlong in the fog, past small houses wearing the blue of their windows. The bear can't see and is cold until mother and daughter let their yarn run onto the floorboards and answer the door. Ice clings to his fur, so they bring him to the fire. His great paws have trouble managing the china cup of broth, and his voice slides, sometimes honey, sometimes gravel. His words are not the words of a bear, yet they aren't afraid his wet fur separating into spears in the firelight. In real life, he's a prince buried inside a bear. When the spell comes apart with a zipper, he steps out wearing his crown. And the beautiful bear suit like snow melt, its astonished jaws catching softly at his shined shoes, I pick it up, I put it on. Thank you. And I should say about that poem that it is, um, it's actually sort of based on that fairy tale, Snow White and Rose Red. A lot of people know the the Snow White story, but they don't know the Rose Red fairy tale. And that was one of my favorite ones when I was little, hmm. uh, where yes. the, the bear does, you know, like does come, does come out of that suit at the end. A prince comes out of the suit, I mean. It's so amazing. There's so, you know, talking about negative capability. I feel like that's in fairy tales that there's just it's kind of like infinitely negatively capable. <laughs> yes. Why they're so attractive. Yes. Archetypal and can hold it all. And um, my friend Jessica Stark's book buffalo girl out from boa and she does a lot with little red riding hood and like the woods the dark woods and yeah. it's like it's like a deep image like that like the beer is like a deep image and that it's also i mean it's it's twinly ekphrastic too with your cover image mm -hmm. and it's picking up the nightmare and the speaker has more agency right like takes almost takes on the agency almost or at least manifest visually like there's something with this bear going on and it ought to wonder I think thank you yeah that's and that was a good place to leave the book I think the ending of that poem really surprised me 
I mean, you know, hopefully most of our poems surprise us, mm -hmm. but that one was really when, when she picks up the suit and puts it on, I was so surprised mm. that she did that, you know? And so that was really like a very gratifying um, moment, you know, oh. to, to write those lines. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I am very wedded to the idea. Maybe I shouldn't be, but that the opening poem and the closing poem are so powerful. Um, I feel like you don't really know what order a reader is going to read things in, but they often read the first poem first and they often <laughs> read the last poem last, even if they pick up the book and they fan it through it and they read different things to be like, will I like this book? Is this yeah. me? And I do try to tell people this book is really written to be read in order. Um, I mean, you can flip through it and pull out poems, but I feel like it it's really written sort of as a memoir in verse. And it it I think it helps to read it a front to back. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's something about it for me that it it circles. I feel like, yes, you're writing you're writing to be you like you read through the poems, but the way the poems themselves engage with the narrative narrative that there's like a circling that happens and that is probably one of my favorite like narrative figures like the gyre or like the thing that returns or that oh no no I'm not done with it I need to revisit and so um like a bird like I love I love that in a book yeah well and it's that obsessive quality mm. that most poets have yes <laughs> you know, that and we the just haunting um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm actually so sorry. No, 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 please go right ahead. I was actually just going to say that um, it's nice to have this book be out in the world because now I really do feel free of this story. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking about it to promote the book. Mm -hmm. It no longer has that same um, hold on me. Yeah. Which is yes. so freeing. Because, you know, my first book, um, this is actually a, in an interesting way, a sort of a continuation of that first book um, in that the first book has to do with the birth of my son and his early years. So it's kind of interesting that the motherhood theme continues mm -hmm. um, through this one, but it's, um, it's nice that like, you know, I joke, but I I'm telling people now I'm going to go write the, you know, the, the happy dog line in the sun poem. Like Richard Wilbur said something like um, <laughs> happy poem is a dog lying in the sun or, or something oh like that. Gosh. And I just, yeah, I'm just looking forward to writing like little happy dog poems in the sun. My manuscript larks, um, which is very much like done. And I'm like sending it out places and since I had that in kind of a finished form, the next book I'm writing, I'm letting myself be as ecrastic as I want to, as like sexy or erotic. I'm like, I can do anything. It's fun for me. It's like so fun because it does feel like having an exorcism of like history out of your body. And you're like, I am done with that right now. Erin, <laughs> I wanted to ask you just as a, a final question. Um, and maybe I should have brought this up earlier because it's really about like 
the archive your poem um that am i getting the title right it's specifically it's called archive um and it it read to me like you were doing some erasure work with primary sources in that and i was wondering if you wanted to say something about erasure because um it does come up with documentary poetics a lot and people have a lot of thoughts and feelings on erasure poetry that is true um well the erasure that i did in this poem was um and i want to kind of look at it while we're talking um it was what i invented so i felt like it was okay that i wasn't erasing someone else's work mm-hmm. um to do that for instance where it's really being erased is uh, or changed i'm going to say you know you do have impressions of and human marks um and you have the the gaps around those but that's more and there there were lines in there there were words in there that i took out um but those are more like facts that I think are, were just better left to the reader's imagination. I mean, I don't need to expressly tell you. Um, and then, you know, the thing about, I think the real change in this poem is going from body to boy and boy to body, you know, in that there's a section actually because I do like to read this poem, but I can only read it up to a certain point mm-hmm. because of uh, the erasures that happen. Um, but in in this poem, in one column, you have, um, there are two columns, and in one column you have um, the word body, but the D has been whited out and it comes back gradually um, so that you can read the word body at the end of the column mm-hmm. and the second column goes the other way. So it starts as body and then the D whites out so that you have boy at the end. Um, and that's sort of like, you know, representative then of the two graves and the two obituaries and, and what happens to the body after death. But in terms of erasure, that's, I think it was that poem. And then there's another one that um, it's on one of the earlier, um, one of the earlier things I did, I can't even remember now, but it, it was, I was, I had all of these plans for it. Like I was going to um, have like a piece of vellum over a poem and there'd be, the vellum would be cut around certain words so that so that the story would surface, you know, Uh but, um, I couldn't explain it very well. And also I think publishing something like that would just be sort of a nightmare and very costly. So, so I gave up on that idea pretty quickly, but, um, found my way around it. That's why, that's why the poem overlay has that title Uh um, because of that was the poem that was going to, you know, the words were going to surface. That is so interesting to hear. I'm always interested in, I mean, the erasure question, and I always think of kind of the extreme example of Susan Howe. And like the Mm -hmm. first time I heard her read and um, 
even if she has like an F and a D together and that's the only thing on the page, like she'll just read that. Like she'll just, like she's so, and you realize you're like, oh, it's it's not a bit. Like, oh, she is committed to wow, exactly. How does she read it? Because I've never heard her in person. She'll just read like strictly the sounds. Be like, like just like that. Like she just, it's wild. Um, But I think I was, you know, and so I'm always interested like, with what a poet's doing on the page and then like what's going to happen with the performance and for her she is textually I mean I know we kind of think of because they are like she's very Protestant Calvinist and um in her aesthetics I think and um and then Fanny how her sister is very Catholic mystic in her aesthetics um so like the the dedication to the word is very high with with Susan Howe. And I just, I think, I think it like really opens, you know, I, I bring it up in, in relation to your book, Side of Disappearance, because there seems to me to be like the way the poems open up to mystery or open up to not saying everything in a way that does not feel like a withholding but like you said earlier, like letting the reader's imagination stepping in. And I love that you said, like, I don't need to tell you everything or I don't. I'm like, yes. And that's just good storytelling. Like, that, you know, like you don't, you don't tell you what you have your reader. Like you want them to want more, like less. Yeah. I do think, and you know, this is a Morak and I in our press, but I'm like, less is more. And then a Morak's over there being like, more is more. And so. balance each other out it's really funny um that does sound like a good balance (laughs) it is because I'm like so committed to less is more even though I'm not very much a minimalist minimalist poet myself I do think that if some if if readers are interested in you know Nidaker or um the idea of condensing or the idea of of writing around a disappearance or a hole or whatever it is um, that they'll be really interested to read sight of disappearance and just such such beautiful sonic pleasure in your book such attention to image um delight in form i love that it didn't end up being a, a one poem right that it's like no you you needed many entrances you needed many doors into what you were doing and that feels right Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I have a friend actually who was helping me um, when it came time to organize the the poems of the book. And she was, and a lot of times I would have a poem that would end with a door and the next poem would open with a door, which I liked, but it was funny because she's going through and she's like, you have so many doors. <laughs> and I did count them after that. And I have, I think it's mentioned like 47 times or something. Whoa, no Probably. way. I never would have guessed that many. And I, I can't remember now. I'd have to do that word count. to tell That's you that. awesome. But it was That's a lot. Awesome. <laughs> it's like Sesame Street when they're like, this today is sponsored by the letter M. It's sponsored by the noun door. I love that. I never, ever would have guessed. I mean, it must be very slate of hand because I never would have guessed um, that high, that many. But I love, I just felt, it just felt pleasurable. I was just like, yeah, I definitely noticed that doors are important. (laughs) And they are, they are. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you, Hannah. It's been really, it's been so good to sit down with you and talk to you and, um, you know, better than passing at the noodle shop at AWP.
I know. <laughs> I know. Although that sounds really fun too. So, well, we should just have lunch. Let's do <laughs> Um, thanks so much. Aaron. I really appreciate taking the time to talk to me and everything you do in the service of poetry. I'm really impressed. Oh, thank you so much. Um, we're thrilled, just thrilled to support your book and it's incredible. So I'm so glad it's in the world and in such a beautiful form and shape and had amazing editing with Mark Harris and we will direct thank everyone to Ornithopter Press. Yay. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>